You are listening to Service Course by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name is Tom Wally and I'm with... Lizzie Banks. Didn't know I was going to have to introduce myself. You're getting lazy, Tom. I'm going to have to take over the... uh, Going to have to do a Rose Manley and take over the lead role at this rate. I don't know why I did it that way. I've got no idea. We should really talk about these. Lizzie, um... How's things? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I mean, you may have noticed that I'm sitting here in my dressing gown. Um, so I guess things are back to normal. Yeah, channeling is- channeling the pro-life, <laughs> like ride, eat, and then do pretty much nothing else. So uh, yeah, I mean, I just, just had a little holiday and then just started riding again. So at the moment, it's pretty much a one-way ticket to Struggle Street. Uh, <laughs> every ride, I've got that feeling like... Am I really getting paid to do this? Because I am so bad. Um, but surely things can only get better. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny, actually. Where are compared to like previous years uh, off season? Where are you, where are you at compared to previous years? Oh God, that is a really good question, but a really tough question because I I kind of feel like I've only had one year when I had a proper off season. Um, so I don't really feel like I have a proper frame of reference. And I've also had a really weird year, you know, a year with concussion, got cleared. Then I spent October training, um, but for no purpose other than to kind of prove to myself and other people that I was good to go again and to get some fitness before I took a holiday and then <laughs> started again for, for a normal, um, you know, a normal build up to the season. So it, it's really nice now because I know... I know what to do. I know how to do this period between now and when the racing starts in February. Um, and I also know those feelings that I have right now when you just feel, I mean, I feel like I've been hit by a train because I've been in the gym. Uh, I feel like I'm pedaling squares and my watts are so low and I bonk after about an hour and a half. So, um, but I know that those things are normal and yeah, it goes pretty fast, really. I think it was only my third or fourth ride back today. So, um, yeah. I think probably around around the same place as you would normally be after an off season. You always feel like hell, and uh, yeah, you, you come around <laughs> after a week or so. I'm hoping so. Going on training camp next week, so I better better come around. Yeah, Lizzie, I mean, you've just told me about this training camp. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of a rider going to Greece for a training camp. <laughs> well, I mean. So, yeah, I'm off to Greece next week, um, flying into Athens and then going to do a training camp in the Peloponnese region in Greece. Um, And I kind of thought, why not? I mean, there are so many beautiful places to ride your bike and Greece will still be a little bit warmer than some of the other places. I've never been. And I mean, I've been doing some serious Google mapping and some serious sleuthing on commute. And there are just so many incredible roads out there and nobody else out there. So, yeah, I think I'm going to be a trendsetter here. And, you know, it's easy to go to Calpe or to go to Mallorca and those places are brilliant. But why not explore? You know, that's that's one of the things that really gives me the joy and the passion is just exploring, finding new places, new roads. And I am so motivated by that. And it's been such a long time since I've really been anywhere um other than belgium to pick up some bikes <laughs> um so so yeah like that thought of kind of riding and and pushing myself in somewhere new is just so hugely motivating and why not explore a new area like greece lizzie's not able to tell you what bikes she went to pick up <laughs> but what one day next month hopefully she'll tell us you tom teasing you making you cling on for the next episode or feminine where we make the big announcement but i have i have oh, some is that, is that, uh, oh you've given the announcement to feminine have you <laughs> i don't get to we don't get to make it on our own podcast that is outrageous um well listen i mean i've uh well i've i've sort of collected a new bike well actually i've collected a new old bike so i've, I've moved house i mean i've left the peak district now i'm in nottingham i'll tell you what lizzie by the way it is a hell of a lot drier here you would you would notice it immediately it is no so hills dry though so to... i don't know yeah but no for no your hills, fixie but... i guess that's pretty good which is handy seeing as that is what we're talking about today yeah so i've, I've been reconnecting i mean i've had a t- bit of a torrid time with 
with, I guess we've both had a bit of a torrid time with cycling over the last year. Twenty twenty two is going to be our year of comebacks, Tom. Okay, well I'm going to. I, I want to so. win a stage of the Tour de France. What are you? What do you want to do? <laughs> I just want to ride my bike again. Yeah. So I just, you know, it's just, it's just, I just haven't. Riding bikes is just part of who I am, and I just haven't been able to do it um, as much as I wanted. And um, but yeah, sort of, I've been reconnecting with my my fixed gear bike, which is my first sort of cycling love really so this episode there's going to be coming up this sort of big sort of quite another one of my big think remember the piece I did on graphene or the piece I did on video games and cycling it's one of those style sort of indulgent explorations but I sort of go back to the roots of fixed gear culture which you know back when I was living in London sort of in the earlier part of the noughties you know you just couldn't move for people riding fixed gear bikes it was just a huge scene and then it sort of faded away so it's a bit of an exploration of that but in terms of fixed gear bikes it's probably a good thing to be talking about because you were at the national hill climb championships what was that like three or four weeks ago yeah i was there and it was truly bonkers 31st of october um and well yeah it halloween and i I guess yeah it was some pretty scary conditions to be honest the words biblical and epic are definitely overused but I mean they don't even they don't even do the conditions and the event justice to to say those words we were driving out and I and notice I say driving out because it was really the worst weather I've ever seen in the Peak District and I spend quite a lot of time in the Peak District um I have never ever seen so much standing water on the roads Uh, (laughs) i mean it was just such a huge amount of rain that fell in such a short space of time um i went out with my friend and we parked in a field and we yeah i mean we just about got in and thankfully the field was on a bit of a hill so getting out you just kind of had to roll back down the hill but getting into the field was a hell of a challenge and then going up to climb there was just a river a river running down the climb um there's a large grassy bank to the side of it and you just couldn't walk up the grass because it was yeah just this muddy river flowing down and i mean the atmosphere was amazing the number of people that turned out turned out for that event um full waterproofs every, but despite the full waterproofs everybody was soaked to the skin um cowbells pots and pans you know and everything you can imagine to cheer and if you don't know the climb when it's passed, Google it because it is a natural amphitheater and it is just the most spectacular place to hold an event like this. And I kind of, you know, we could see what the weather was going to be like before and we wondered, oh, is it going to dampen the atmosphere? And no, it, it honestly just made it better. Like it made it just so brilliant. And, you know, it was almost like the race finished and as soon as the race finished, it stopped raining. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it was a, it was a, it, it looked, it looked amazing. I, you know, I was in the end, I was pretty thankful I, I wasn't able to attend because it, it, you know, the weather was bleak. But on the fixed gear tip, so the previous record was set. You were just telling me by yeah, Peter, so Peter Greenall. Peter, Peter Greenall in in 1966, right? And this is completely bonkers when we we move on to kind of how fast the new record was set this year, but. The old record was set in three minutes, 11 seconds on around seven kilo bike. So Sky Peter Greenhalgh, he rode from Nottingham, <laughs> from Nottingham right, come on. to win its pass yeah. on a fixed gear bike. He raced yeah, this right it itself. on a fixie. I mean, it's definitely one of your forefathers. Um, and then he rode home again. I mean, how bonkers is that? It was an FH Grub steel frame with beautiful lugs, Brooks saddle, um, these really quite cool narrow handlebars, actually. And yeah, I mean, I'm quite impressed with how light the bike was for for a bike that's that's so old. Um, But yeah, I mean, the record has now been been kind of yeah smashed or the men's record i should say has now been smashed and it was it was broken twice first by andy feather uh, in a time of 308 and then by tom bell in a time of 301 and given the fact that the conditions were pretty horrendous it's just i mean it's it's amazing to break the record but it also shows how 
how brilliant Peter Greenhalg must have been as a rider to to have gone up there in three eleven. The difference in tech we have, you know, these these bikes, Tom Bell's winning bike was five point two, five point four kilos or something. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the the whole thing is just bonkers. I mean, I would go online and search for the National Hill Climb Championships and go and have a look at some of those bikes if you can. But but I mean, the other great thing about this race was the first women's Queen of Winnets Pass was was crowned as well. And uh, so Bithya Jones, um, she raced up it in four minutes dead. And the brilliant thing, she was on uh, a Tifosi Mons 10-speed Campag. Um, and so that's what I love about the hill climbing scene. It's not about having, you know, the flashiest 10 grand bike that you, you know, take on a winter ride with no mudguards. It's about using what you've got and um, being innovative and being adaptive. I mean, some of the best things I saw, some of the most bonkers things, actually it was it was mostly my friends who had the most bonkers things, which <laughs> maybe it says more about me. Um, so a lot of people had these little, little rear lights, which were just simply an LED wired into a tiny, tiny, tiny battery. It was two grams two grams so the ctt rules ctt is the kind of the federation that um looks after hill climb so the the rule is that you have to have a working rear light and it flashes red so it counts um so yeah there's there's always a way around the rules it's very dan bigamesque but just just brilliant Oh, gee, well, I wish I'd, I wish I could have been there. Anything else that you spotted while you were while you were out about sleuthing around? Well, another friend of mine had an aluminium cassette, which um, was super lightweight, but actually quite funny because at a previous hill climb, he started off in a, um, a in a in a bigger gear and put a bit too much torque through and snapped a tooth on it. <laughs> but I was gonna say, yeah, that feels like that could happen. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully definitely. he didn't need the big gears going up winnets. Um, Rebecca Richardson, who we spoke to a couple of podcasts ago, and it was a really brilliant interview. So go back and listen to it. I think it was um, yeah, the September episode. Um, if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to it because she was she was third on the day um, in the, the women's category. Um, Mary Wilkinson was second, and Rebecca was third. Mary, Mary Wilkinson, by the way, quick shout out to her. She was second by one second. So brilliant ride by her. So Rebecca's ethos was 4.7 kilos and it was a disc brake bike. Wow. And so it had, uh, you know, the Z string spoke wheels, which we featured before on the podcast Mm, back in November 2019. But some other, like another really, really cool thing is her saddle was fixed with polymer string. So instead of having your... Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Tom, <laughs> Tom's like giving me a Just confused a... look. Can't speak because he's so confused. What? So instead of a kind of standard, um, yeah, quite clunky saddle rail that actually weighs quite, or saddle kind of rail fixing, don't know what you call it, that, that weighs quite a lot. You've got two yeah. pieces of polymer string to to kind of to hold the clamps in place, and that's instead of the screws. Um, wow. Yeah absolutely bonkers like really really quite bonkers but um brilliant no just the whole thing was absolutely brilliant and uh it was a huge success despite the biblical biblical weather but i have to say i was there i was there really purely on pleasure and not on business and i completely forgot to actually check out the bikes because far too busy (laughs) screaming at the riders and running up the hill (laughs) so uh having a whale of a time but yeah Okay, Lizzie, well, before we move on, anything else that you uh, spotted when you were there? Uh, I mean, I guess the final thing was, um, it's quite interesting, actually, because this climb is, yeah, it's 20% and it's it's a very steady gradient. It's a steady, absolutely horrendous gradient, <laughs> um, which makes it really suitable for fixed gears. But despite that, I think there was only two or three fixed gear bikes there, but very, very, very few anyway, which was actually a bit surprising. But I think the reason or a couple of reasons, to be honest, um, one is the fact that when it's pass is is very changeable to ride. So if you have happen to have a tailwind, which is unlikely, it's incredibly fast, relatively. But if you have a howling headwind, and actually it was lucky that the riders were riding in biblical rain because later that day, there were gale force winds which would have been howling in the riders' faces going up the climb and then getting up would have been nigh on impossible. And so I think because of the 
the unknown nature of what the 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 weather conditions were going to be doing then actually you you're kind of uncertain about what gear you want to ride perhaps the other thing about the weather conditions is that because it was so wet and the riders were putting out so much power over three or four minutes, a lot of the riders actually changed their, their rear wheel right at the last minute. So Tom Bell, he had this lightweight tubular on his front tyre and he switched out his rear wheel for a quite heavy training wheel um, with a Pirelli 25mm um, winter tyre on the back. So like a heavy wheel, heavy tyre. But it meant that he could actually go faster because he wasn't slipping. So a lot of the riders on the, well, I say the steep section, the, the whole thing was steep, but the over 20% section, when you're really, really pushing, um, they were sliding and slipping on their back wheel. And and because he'd done that, he, he managed to kind of, well, I mean, he was obviously, he was obviously, you know, next level anyway, but but he then had that advantage that he actually had the grip. And that is so important. Like that is more important than, you know, a few hundred grams. Shoot, shoot that arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. This episode of Service Course is sponsored by LinkedIn. Now today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster and it's free. Now we've used LinkedIn here at the Cycling Podcast to recruit producers. I've also used it personally for my own business. I work for myself um, as a freelance producer so I'm often responding to job adverts on LinkedIn I'm also pleading for jobs on LinkedIn and letting people know that I'm available but I also have a production company myself called Stripped Media and we've used LinkedIn ourselves to hire for big projects radio production podcast production projects that we're doing You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs and it reaches the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK alone. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience that you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. Again, that's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job for free. Just a warning though, if you do post a podcast production job, I may apply. Christmas is coming. And our gift to you this year is the Service Course press conference episode. Yes, we are back again for a second edition. So you can send in your questions um, and they can be about anything, whatever you like. Uh, Gravel riding, graphene, space elevators, whatever you can think of. Maybe fixie car park crits. Send them over and we will try and find a real expert, not just Tom and I, to answer your questions. So if you email your questions to contact at thecyclingpodcast.com and you put service course or press conference in the subject line, it'll find its way to us and we will answer those questions for you in the December episode of Service Course. Hello, my name is Tom Wally and I love to ride bikes. Well, I once loved to ride bikes. A global pandemic, a growing family, a busy job and a house move mean that my 10 to 15 hours of riding and training in the Peak District every week is now five hours a week maximum and that's all done in a garage in Nottingham pretty much. I can't overstate how important cycling has been to me. It's become a big chunk of my career but it's also what helped straighten me out cycling stopped me from destructive things like smoking and drinking and it gave me something more constructive to focus on it got me fitter than I'd ever been before and it's helped me make new friends wherever I've lived cycling got me so fit that I was able to race competitively not at a particularly high level but it took me further than I'd ever dreamed it would I stopped racing in 2019 when I knew it was no longer sustainable to be away from my family for big chunks of the weekend, you know, between March and October every year. The idea was to stop racing, but maybe start having more adventures on the bike and doing things like gravel events. And that way I could maybe take my family with me for the weekend, enjoy some camping and also get a fun ride in. But then the pandemic. 
And since then, my mental health, to be honest with you, it's just been in the bin. Cycling was such a big part of who I was that when I stopped, I felt lost and disconnected. And the social contact dried up because I wasn't out on the road with my former friends. And the anxiety that comes with a decline in fitness was incredibly pronounced. I'm now back living in a city and I'm trying to get back to being the person that I was by utilising the bike that first made me fall back in love with with riding. That bike is my fixie. My fixie is nothing special. It's just a a respray Genesis flyer frame. It's got some wheels whose brand I can't even remember. They're basically bomb-proof wheels. It's got uh, brick lane bikes, chain rings and cranks, Shimano SPD pedals, And that is about it. I love the simplicity of fixed gear bikes, but not just that, it's the look of them. None of the lines are interrupted by derailleurs, rear brakes or excessive cabling. And I just love how modular they are. It's so simple to switch components out and quickly change the entire look of the bike. Even an idiot like me can do it. Here's a question for you. Does anyone ever tell you that you look like someone? I get quite a few. Or at least I used to. Hi, Dennis Pennis here. And I'm thinking to myself, has it really been six months since I've been in LA? Has Dennis really Pennis. Hmm, okay. Rod Hall. You know how to upset somebody, don't you? Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, um, yes, carry on. Not that's, the most complimentary. This one's a bit of a niche one. Spider Nugent from Coronation Street. Oh, there you are. We've done a runner. But fast forward to around 2008, and it was always this guy. Did you want a cup of tea, Taz? I couldn't eat a thing. My stomach's like a walnut. Don't you even have tea? No, no, no salad. Something orange? Uh, water. And to be honest, I was pretty thrilled by it. Maybe it was watching Spaced in the early 2000s that set me on a path to becoming a fakinger. We'll talk more about that term later. A while back I actually rewatched both series and I noticed that Daisy often wears an Adidas hoodie made for the Criterium de Dauphine or Criterium Libre as I think hers says. Was space laying a path for me without knowing it? That's not what this episode is about and for this latest piece of self-indulgence and to make sure that we stay on message, talking about cycling tech, I want to celebrate the fixed gear bike and how it has helped me not only to get out riding again but has also helped me with my mental health. But I also want to look at the current state of fixed gear culture, which was at its peak, you know, 10, 12 years ago when I was in London. And has since, well, it seemingly died a death, but I'm sure it still survives in some form. I just thought that the idea that, you know, these two guys were going to make a book was going to just infuriate everyone. Um, This is Max Leonard, and he literally wrote the book on fixed gear bikes. Actually, everyone was hyped and incredibly supportive. And we had a a really good launch in London where everyone came along, we took over. It was actually a weird, like, fetish club slash uh, Lucho Libre uh, space in an arch in Bethnal Green, um, which had been sort of passed on to me by a weird mate of mine. And um, so we we put up a few posters and stuff because Andy, my co-author, was working at the council at the time so he had access to, he could print A1 so he ran off some posters of images from the book and we put them up and then at the very last minute I realised that there was a um, there was still a stripper's pole in the middle of the thing and I was like, you've got to, you can't, we can't have this in here you've got to get rid of this and the guy's like, you can't move all these guys and girls piled into there um, we had had some bike uh sort of hang, uh, bike racks that we were going to construct but we didn't manage to do it because we were stressed out and there was no time so they just all piled in and everyone left their bikes around this place and sort of drank beer and looked at bike pictures around a stripper's pole which was bizarre stripper's pole east london did i mention that it was a very nathan barley time to be alive but i loved it The story of where fixed gear culture began has never truly been settled on and as Max talks about, a fixed gear bike meant very different things depending on when and where you grew up. That's completely different in the UK. There's a long history, as I'm sure you know, of um, people riding fixed wheel through the winter and riding road path frames which are drilled for a break and mudguards and all that kind of thing. So actually where we come from is very different. 
But the most told story is that it began in New York. It's what we investigated in the book was it had come from a group of um, African-American messengers in New York. I think it's in the 70s who had sort of adopted the track bike um you know, from racing the local velodrome, which I think is in Queens, and taken it out onto the street and used it as, uh, you know, a machine for working the city because uh, it was didn't look valuable. It was very easy to fix. It, you know, you could ride a very good bike, but uh, no one would really notice. And then they go up in in that part of the world, the culture of riding brakeless, because that's how track bikes were. That's always been the same story that I've told. Maybe some more evidence to support it can be found here. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing from 1989 features a character dressed in a messenger or fakinger style, complete with a Brooklyn casquette. Spike Lee himself wore one. If you've seen Netflix's The Last Dance, then you'll have seen him in it as part of that Nike ad that he made with Michael Jordan. Cycling style is everywhere if you know where to look for it. The connection with New York is also underlined by Nelson Vales. Now, Nelson was the first black American cyclist to win a medal at the Olympics. He took the silver medal in the individual sprint at the 1984 Games in LA. Nelson looks a little bit more relaxed up there. You can see he doesn't want to take the lead. He'd rather ride from behind. You're only allowed to go backwards five centimeters here. But they can sit here all day. Right? <laughs> he was great to talk to. He, used to he, he came out with some great lines. I think people have talked to him a bit since, but I don't think anyone had really asked him about that part of his life at that point. And yeah, he, he'd been a young kid growing up in one of the New York boroughs and became a courier and just realised that he was really fast. Uh, and so he was he was what you know one of the kings of his particular dispatch company and uh, was racing at the velodrome and he'd just come out with great lines like we'd party all night uh, then we'd go get breakfast then I'd go to the track and I'd beat your ass and that that kind of thing and and there was a real like competitive thing that I think New York bred because it was a hard hard place to ride and a hard place to work and you know it, New York is a it's just a tough town to live in. It's a very dog-eat-dog kind of place. And, and actually, I think New Yorkers revel in that. And they think that if you can't stand it, well, then you need to get out. But it, it bred a certain sort of rider. Um, it's funny, though, riding in New York seemed very different to me to London and actually a bit easier. Because even though you've got, I don't know, big four-lane roads and everyone, traffic was pretty, pretty mental, you were just going one direction. Uh, everyone was going the same direction. It was it was pretty slow actually, and so if you were riding at a decent speed, you could, you know, go, just go down Fifth Avenue or Third Avenue or you know I can't remember which of the ups and downs. But uh, if you hit the lights right and the guys knew exactly the right speed to go, it's something like 18 miles an hour. But you could just ride a wave of green lights. For me, it wasn't New York that turned me on to Fitzgear riding. It was the films and images coming out of San Francisco that really made me take notice. MASH, uh, who put out all those amazing films in the kind of early, mid-2000s, and they're still going. Um, they were really they really were very wary and they wanted us to, to make sure that we were getting the right things and we, that we were crediting the right people. And then, you know, once we hung out with them a bit, um, it, was, it was all good vibes, but... Um, we went on a couple of photo shoots with them or I can't remember if it's photos or videos and watched a couple of their guys herring down the hills through the traffic and you know having to do a I guess a left turn across two lanes and striking his pedal and all this sort of thing and it was um it was pretty hardcore and I mean even riding a track bike on, a, on any sort of normal gearing up up and down San Francisco hills is pretty tough. Riding fixed gear didn't just give me a love for fixed gear bikes and the occasional knee injury. Talking to Max, it also reminded me that it gave me a whole new lexicon. Yeah, there's, st- there's still um, slang that we use about bikes that you see today, that, you know, the hip-hop slave bike. And um, there, there was one called Pengi as well. If you look up Pengi bike, still on Google, you'll find this amazing picture of uh, a sort of orange and black thing with disc uh, with uh, tri-spoke wheels and... It, just the most wrong thing ever and it, if something was pengy 
uh, as opposed to actual London slang, peng means good, but pengi is just a sh- shorthand for the worst looking, crappiest bite you could ever imagine. I've used it here already, but there was also fakinger, someone who dressed like a bike messenger, but wasn't one. A lot of this language came from LFGSS, the London Fixed Gear and Single Speed Forum. On occasion, one of the most toxic places on the planet, and a space that gave us a good preparation for the way discourse has gone on places like Twitter. It was funny, yeah, how that how people would get, you know, flamed. It seems like seems quite quaint now in in you know the whole like cancel the, the place that we are with cancel culture and stuff but i've still got friends from the forum i mean mark was like on the forum at that time mark hudson the archivist and it was just at you know at one point i think it was like the third biggest uh, bicycle forum in the world of any talk, sort and it was just a really amazing community and um that was probably something about fixed that was appealing at that time well it was I think it's one of those things where it was the best of times and the worst of times um because that was I I made a lot of friends through that forum who are still friends now and it was you know any sort of community which which it was you get a lot out of but also it was basically an incredibly sexist and homophobic place in a way that largely went unchallenged and I only realized quite a few years afterwards that that was why I stopped going there not even deliberately just because I sort of increasingly felt uncomfortable and not at home there and when I had time to waste on the internet I would end up going somewhere else and eventually thought oh yeah I don't really go there anymore interesting I mean it is I don't want to condemn it because I did get some good stuff out of there but in hindsight it was one of those things where you look back and think that thing we thought did us all a lot of good actually was incredibly toxic that was Emily Chapel, who you'll know from episodes of Explore. She's an adventurer, a long-distance cyclist and author. But she also spent time as a bike messenger during the peak years of fixed gear cycling. There were a lot of people who really did think we were the lowest of the low. And if I told someone I was a courier, they'd say, oh, you all jump red lights and they'd want to have that conversation. Um, and then the other half of the people would be, oh, oh my God, you're the coolest person alive. I've always wanted to be a cycle courier. Let me bask in your glory. Emily paints a pretty ordinary picture of what it was like to be a bike messenger at that time, especially for someone like me, who thought that they were some of the coolest people on the planet. What I realised is that the fakingers were actually way cooler than we were, because like, I could not afford to dress very well. And, you know, I didn't even look cool in ripped jeans. I just looked like a mess and smelt worse. Um, my bike was a terrible mess because I could only ever afford to do the bare minimum to it. So you'd see these on their shiny, shiny bikes with all their modifications and things. And they, now you, you guys are absolutely killing it. We just look like tramps on bikes. Um, so there was this weird sort of imbalance between how we were perceived. And then I, I do feel that often you were sort of, if you were not one of the cool looking couriers, you were sort of passed over because you weren't really worth aspiring to. So... There were all these, uh, I do remember that every summer there'd be a few new people who'd come in who were clearly just people on their university holidays. And they were always, you know, tall, athletic, good looking young men in singlets. And they were the ones who I think, you know, the street photographers would get them. Everyone would be like, oh, yes, a cycle courier in his natural habitat. And I'd be there kind of still smelling from winter thinking, well, I mean, this is the real thing, but I guess that's less interesting. So... I don't know, we were sort of way more authentic and then in a way almost less authentic in terms of the image that people were expecting, if that makes sense. Was There was a continuity and, you know, I was part of both scenes. It wasn't completely separate. I was riding, uh, oh, actually, no, the first couple of years I was riding this knackered Condor Pista that I bought off someone dodgy for 200 quid and it was, I never liked it. I hated it. Um, I didn't get on with it at all. Um, I'd had a really nice steel frame, um, a Surly Steamroller, um, and about two months before I became a courier, I crashed it and bent it, and that was, I'm still a bit sore about that. And that would have been an amazing bike to courier on, but as it was, I had this this shitty Condor Pista that I didn't like. And then eventually, um, I got to the stage where so much was broken on the Condor that it really wasn't worth replacing it all. And a friend sold me a really, really nice uh, Joe War frame, which I still have. 
which is unbelievably knackered. Um, and now I live in Bristol and it's been tagged as well. I locked it up outside a shop and someone tagged it, which I love. I was I was almost always on fixed. Um, there were a couple of geared interludes where basically if I broke the bike or at one point I uh, I think my lock broke. So the bike was trapped outside my house and I had to borrow a friend's road bike. But I was mostly on fixed and that's... Uh, that was just as far as I was concerned, the way to do it. Partly for practical reasons, because it's cheaper to ride fixed. There are fewer parts and there's less stuff to break. And I was used to it and it felt, you know, I had much more control over the bike. It felt easier to ride through traffic. It was more, you know, you could control your line a lot more closely. With ge- with a geared bike, it just felt like you'd sort of launch yourself and then hope for the best. But with a fixie, you could really sort of, you know, every time a car moved, you'd be like, oh, okay, modify. So I did, but I haven't ridden it for a long time. Talking to Emily, it struck me that a lot of the spaces inhabited by the fixed gear scene were actually pretty toxic, particularly the forum that I spoke about earlier. It made me think about Emily's experience as a female in the scene. I think I'm probably still forming and revising my opinions on this because I mostly felt welcome when I turned up. Um, But one of the only reasons I felt able to turn up to stuff like, you know, courier events, Fakinger events, London fixed gear, pub meets and things, was that I was fairly credible. Like I always had reasonably good bikes. Like the the Surly, it was very customised and people loved it. I was always happy to turn up with that because people would check it out. And I was like, yeah, you may check out my bike. I do too. Um, And also I was fairly, you know, legitimate as a rider. I mean, I was a fucking cycle courier, you know, I was the highest high. So I sort of felt I could get away with turning up and also being female and, um, you know, whatever inadequacies that showed about me, I made up for them by having a nice bike and being a bike messenger. I, the fact that I felt like that, um, I don't know. I mean, this is this is not exclusive to this community by any means. This is a lot of the bike scene. Um, I think it's very hard to show up to events knowing the way you will potentially be judged or ripped to, ripped to shreds if you don't fit in. And there is, I mean, it was with that community in particular, there was this sort of, a bit like how it's worked out with the rules. You know, it started out as a very, very tongue-in-cheek thing, like we're pretending to be really judgmental about your bike. And by the end of it, you were people were actually just being really judgmental about each other's bikes. Um, like, you know, the irony eventually fades out and that's just the way things are. Inevitably, with something underground that carries a cultural value, it starts to peak above ground and turn that cultural value into actual monetary value. That's kind of what happened with fixed gear cycling, and particularly when you think about stuff like the Red Hook Crits, which were organised fixed gear street races that were a world away from the illegal races and alley cats that were a big part of the culture. But the Red Hook Crits were great, and sadly they are no more. But some of the riders who rode them have now ended up in the pro peloton, and one such rider is Tibco Silicon Valley's Tanya Erath. In 2017, she won seven of the 12 fixed gear crits she raced in. She took third during the Red Hook crit in Barcelona and finished fifth uh, in the overall classification. What's more impressive is that she raced her first fixie crit two weeks after her first ride on a fixed gear bike. That same year, 2017, she also won the Zwift Academy competition, which gave her a pro contract with Canyon SRAM. Oh, and she's also an actual doctor. I spoke to Tanya while she recovered from her recent back injury sustained during the women's tour. I'm still lying on the couch, as you might be able to see. Uh, yeah, I fractured two vertebra bodies, so a bed rest for most of the past five weeks, which is quite, quite hard when you come out of, like, yeah, racing and being in top form for Roubaix and then like two days later suddenly you're stuck in a hospital bed uh not even able to go to toilet or have a shower or nothing <laughs> so yeah uh that was quite a challenge but it's getting better from day to day so yeah the thing is with a fractured spine 
it's always quite like it's a threatening thought to think about like okay that could have been like the end of me walking around and cycling mm. so it's like uh yeah sometimes like when you lay in bed after the injury and you like have time to think about all of it all of it 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 just makes you like a bit panicked because you're like okay I was just lucky 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 and also because um yeah the NHS nightmare was like I wasn't immobilized I didn't like they didn't put me on a spine board uh they didn't give me a stiff neck I was uh dropped off at the team parking and then the team drove me to uh to the A&E where I sat for like six hours I guess and I walked around and I carried my back and even if when they saw the uh, fracture on the x-ray like I walked to the CT scan carried my back around and I was just like this is like everything that's happening here is just like so wrong and it was it was awful because like I'm a doctor myself and like I could tell like this is not right but on the same in the same time you need the help so you're just like okay like I'm I'm just gonna roll with it because there's nothing I can do I just need those people to help me so yeah I was quite intense first week and then like getting back from the UK was quite a struggle because I had a flight um arranged from the insurance but because of the fuel shortage they couldn't get me from Oxford to London Heathrow so in the end they ended up sending an ambulance from Germany to Oxford and then they drove me home 13 hours so yeah it was very interesting now I've been riding fixed gear for the best part of 15 years but unlike Tanya I have never dared race it certainly on a road or you know crit circuit so I asked Tanya what kind of skills you need to race essentially a track bike on the road I I don't know like maybe I have I just had another approach to it but it was like uh I was a triathlete then I did a, a few like small road races and then somebody said, oh, I think you could do some fixed gear races with us. Why don't you come with us? So I went on a track bike the first time. And then two weeks later, I did my first race. So I don't think that it acquires a lot of skill because compared to like, I think half a year later, when I went to the pro peloton, I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, what's, what's happening here? And like fixed gear racing just felt so natural because it's like, it's like, it's not like, you're in a bunch and you can't see what's coming up and like you just have to trust the people around you like showing you signs and doing stuff and like everybody like hammers into a corner because they know if I'm not in position race is over it's just like you're on a 1k track or like 1.5k track or circuit and everybody's just racing and it's so smooth because nobody breaks and it's kind of a constant speed so I think compared to road racing it's it's really smooth racing so I guess the only real skill you need is like knowing that you can't break and uh, don't fight your bike and just like keep pedaling I think that's the only thing that can happen that like what people also do on the track sometimes that they just like stop pedaling and then their own pedals like smash them off the bike. But obviously fixed gear. I mean, you know, the racing's one side thing, but the whole, the lifestyle, the scene, everything. Were you, were you part of the fixed gear scene sort of away from the crits as well then? Was that, was that a big part of your life? Not really. Like, I mean, during the time that I raced fixed gear, I did my final year of university studying medicine and the final year in Germany is working full time in the hospital uh so yeah like i i went on the weekends i sometimes went to fix ski races and on monday i yeah went on the ward again <laughs> so yeah not really a fixed ski lifestyle it's that's that's really interesting um i mean I, in terms of the lifestyle actually i mean you know i mean it's obviously we talk about red hook but you know red hook has sort of since disappeared uh, do you still keep in touch with with um, what's happening in the fixed gear scene i mean because because over here i mean you know now there's no red hook it, I, it, you'd be hard pushed in in britain to, to find a fixie race yeah uh yeah so the nl crits series is still happening and a lot of my friends from back then like i, I used to spend a lot of time with like the dutch fixed races and they are still racing 
And then Margot Vigier, she's now racing for Valkar. So she also stepped into the pro racing scene and we used to race Red Hooks together. So I see her from time to time. And yeah, I guess just like, I mean, Instagram and social media in general makes it happy to just like stay in contact and talk to people from time to time. But yeah, I mean, uh, since the Red Hooks are not happening anymore, I'm not sure if it's just like me leaving the bubble that I feel like fixed gear racing became smaller because it's always like if you if you spend your time in a bubble, you're like, oh, this is huge. This is my life. And then you get out of the bubble. I had the same with triathlon. And then suddenly you realize like nobody like nobody cares about outside of your bubble. It's 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 the same. And I like fixed gear is a small sport, but then like triathlon is a huge sport. But like as soon as you like leave your bubble, you're like nobody knows the people I know because nobody's interested in triathlon. And I kind of feel like it's the same with fixed gear racing. So I like from the outside, I can't really judge if it just became came way smaller or if it's just me leaving the bubble. In terms of what it gave you, I'm really interested in, you know, because obviously we'll talk a bit about how you, I mean, you've, you've talked about this, about this loads, but how you came into the sport and how you got your contract. But fixed gear was a big part of that. What do you think it gave you? And what does it still maybe give you to this day? I just want to come back to what you just said. So I think that's a good point. Like, that's also a reason why I came into fixed gear racing, because I thought, okay, like in my practical year, I won't really have a lot of time because working hours are like 60 to 80 hours a week, I guess. But I was like, I can always do like a half an hour crit. So it was like, okay, I'm just going to put like a few hours in like every day or like one hour in, and that's going to be enough to make like a half an hour race. Whereas it's, it wasn't enough to do like a, a road race of 120K. So I think it's a, it's a good point that you just said, like you, if you don't have that much time, fixed gear is just it's still it's kind of like uh yeah indoor riding it's just like really intense because you never stop pedaling and you kind of have to use your legs for braking for accelerating you have your one gear that you're kind of stuck in so it's kind of you make good of good cadence work so it's really good like intense training if you don't have a lot of time so that's also like a, a upside i think of fixed gear in general and i mean they used to do it back in the days in the winter um so i guess it has some um really good um um no i don't have the word what well, was really yeah. a benefits yeah for training sorry um and yeah what what did it give me like i think in general it gave me confidence uh like coming into the fixed gear scene and not knowing anyone and not knowing what i can do and then realizing Oh, I'm really like I'm good at that and I can I can race with those girls and also having some pro girls racing red hooks whereas you never had the chance to race with the pros when you did only like smaller local races and then suddenly there was like Danny King uh, racing with us or Rachele Barbieri and those girls that I only knew from TV and suddenly I was racing with them and I realized like it's not like they they drop me or they're like I'm not able to keep up with them and that made me kind of I think realize that I can I can go for maybe a pro contract and I think and I without the red hooks I, I wouldn't have the confidence to maybe give Swift Academy a shot and then go where I am now so I think yeah confidence for sure and uh, more style because I came from triathlon so <laughs> uh, yeah definitely. Um, I, I mean it was kind of in the beginning it was also kind of annoying because I felt like you don't like that's what I really like about triathlon is like you can look the way you want and nobody's going to judge you as long as you're, as you're fast and in cycling I feel like even if you're fast people are always going to judge you for how you look and I'm, I'm not sure what I like more I think like from my personality I like the triathlon approach more but then I really like the way I look now more than I used <laughs> than I used to yeah uh so yeah I guess I'm happy that um fixed gear racing changed my style on the bike 
mean, obviously, you know, I mean, we should talk about how it relates to sort of, I guess, to Zwift and because um, obviously, you know, you came through the the Zwift Academy. I was just, in fact, I've just, um, I just bookmarked one of your workouts on Zwift, actually, an hour long one because because that's all I get these days is an hour, you know. So that's yeah. that's that's what that's what I can do. But you're right. I mean, I think that that compar- that comparison, that sort of efficiency, you know, if I'm out on my fixie, yeah, I'm never taking a minute's breather, and that is. That is the same thing on Zwift. And I guess, you know, when I'm on Zwift or, or any of the platforms, I can kind of, I can manage that, you know, that never stopping because I've got, you know, 10, 12 years of, of that in my background. It's, it's there. Yeah. I mean, you, that must have helped you surely massively. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess try like being 10 years in triathlon helped even a bit more yeah. because I mean, I've only been in fixed gear racing for one season in the end. Um, but yeah, I think mo- the biggest um, plus from fixed gear racing was probably like the skills because like I, I, I learned how to ride on rollers. Like I learned how to corner and I was just, I just like spent hours on my bike, just like riding in circles, uh, which I, I never did with a road bike because like with a road bike, you just like go out and yeah, do your kilometers. And with a fixed gear bike, you just like work on your skills. And I mean, now in in road racing on a pro level you realize like how, like how important it is to have certain skills so yeah i think uh the skills that fixed gear racing gave me um are also like a big plus from that time That was Tanya Erath and she'll be riding with EF Education Tipco SVB next year. So keep your eye out for her results. Before we close out this little trip through the fixed gear phenomenon, I wanted to know where the culture is now at this moment in time. Here's Max again. I think it must be inevitable that as these things spread, the heat goes out of it. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because, you know, we a lot of people will still be riding their fixed gear bikes and enjoying it and it was a gateway to a lot of people um to riding a road bike or mountain bike or getting into cycling and fitness which um is a pretty amazing thing to do you know i made friends from there went to the pyrenees so i started you know one of the first times i went riding in the mountains uh properly um so I don't, I don't think you could really re- recreate that moment but you know I'm still living in Hackney now or I'm back in Hackney and I do keep my eye on what's going what people are riding and and actually it seems to me in the past year or two that I've started seeing what I would think of as a uh, retro bikes that that builds from you know my particular moment of things I used to geek on when I was uh you know late 20s early 30s you know the uh the tri spokes the the particular like little riser bars stuff like that um so i I think that people you know people are just going on with it quietly and and the forum is still huge um it's still it's still massive yeah i mean i think people talk less about um fixed gear and you know it is a general bike forum full of Enthusiasts. I know there's a lot of people talk about gravel and Audax and that kind of thing um, because I get, I don't, I don't chat much on it anymore, but I get notifications every now and again about books and stuff and, and I chip in when I can. I mentioned earlier about the language that the fixed gear scene gave us. Max reminded me of some more. You were talking about all the slang. I was just thinking we used to think cool things 531, which was awesome. But the most widespread term used in that scene was bike porn. And so I asked Max to talk about a particularly beautiful bike that he remembers from from back in the day. And unsurprisingly, this took us to Japan. Yeah, the Japanese Kirin Leagues, as you probably know, had a very strict system of classification for those frames you're allowed to ride and all the components and anything that you were allowed to use where you had uh, very, only very particular frame builders that could build frames but any other components were stamped NJS which was the name of the Kirin uh, League uh, governing body and so there was this you know intense fetishism and search for, for NJS bits and we when we were doing the book we went to Tokyo and we got in touch with um, 
the JKA, the Japanese Kirin Association. And for some reason, that I think they, they thought that we were important. So they kind of welcomed us with open arms and took us to, uh, we went to Kirin school. We went to a, a couple of Kirin races on, on their, um, on their ticket and got to see some amazing things. But we did talk to Koichi Nakano, who is one of the most, um, most celebrated, uh, and successful Kirin races ever. And I think we saw one of his bikes and, and if you're looking for a perfect bike, uh, an NJS frame that's absolutely specced out right. Uh, he, he rode for Nagasawa, which is one of the big builders. And I think a Nagasawa in particular shade of red with the uh, Durace Shimano uh, high flange hubs and you know, the right saddle and that sort of thing, Nitto bits, that would, to me would be an absolutely breathtaking bike. My thanks to Max, to Emily and to Tanya and thanks to you for coming on this little self-indulgent trip back in time. Only a decade or so back in time, but back in time nonetheless. And if you do happen to be cruising around on your fixie in Nottingham, give me a wave. Maybe we'll go for a ride together. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you as ever to Science in Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast and all that we do throughout 2021 and all the years before that. They've been with us for such a long time and we are so grateful for their support. I need to stock up on a few science in sport things myself and often uh, I'll send a few out as a Christmas presents to the, to my cycling friends as well. If you want to get 25% off your next order with science in sport, then go to scienceinsport.com and enter the offer code SISCP25. That's SISCP25. It's very interesting to um, chatting to Tanya in that package. Um, she's very keen next year. Obviously, she's got the alternative race calendar with EF being uh, on board with her team. Yeah, she's hoping to be able to race some fixed gear crits as part of that. I was wondering, Lizzie, if, if that'd be something that might appeal to you, you know, the, the fixed gear race, because you've never ridden a fixed gear, right? So, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if this is now the time to admit that I've never ridden an outdoor fixed gear bike. <laughs> can we well, still be listen, friends I mean, <laughs> I, I, listen 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 I, I think I, i've been i don't want to encourage you to do it because you know it could send you on a completely different path and you've got you know you've got you've got classics to try and win you know <laughs> yeah but, um, i mean i guess it's, i've just it's I've, so addictive i've not had that many bikes you know um and i never had the luxury of having loads of money to buy loads of different bikes and so i had one bike uh, and i've always really had one bike and recent only very recently got a second bike which is a mountain bike um and I guess living in a really hilly place, fixie never, ever occurred to me. And uh, yeah, I actually read Emily Chappell's books, both of which are brilliant. I'm going to do a quick plug for her for Christmas. And if you do want one, then go and send her a message over on social media because I think she's uh, doing a doing a Christmas postal run soon. But absolutely brilliant books. I had no idea what a cycle courier was. I didn't even know that it was a thing. Um but surely it's the way of the future. I mean, you know, we can't, deliveries are getting so much more common. We can't just have cars everywhere. It's just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it's so fast to get around cities on the bikes. Um, sorry, I've kind of gone off piste here, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basically. You're stalling, Lizzie. Are you going to race a fixed gear crit Am I going to, yeah, oh, asking. that's why. That's why I like quickly diverted from the Lizzie, will you race a fixed gear crit? So let's talk about Emily Chapel. <laughs> Um, no, Tom, I will not be racing a fixed gear crit. I feel like I've had enough concussions uh, for my career in cycling. But I mean, if there's one of those uphill car park races, do they do, do they do yep. those on fixies? Yeah, that was a, that was a, that was again that was like this is taking me. That was all part of the scene. These sort of you know yeah race up a an empty car park in the evening. You know, I'm, I was not something I ever did. And I've got to say, you know, I, all the time that I was riding fixed, I still do. I was always legal. You know, I've always had a front brake. And, I, you know, I was never taking part in, in alley cats and these illegal races and stuff. But they were very much part of the culture. And, you know, they were 
pretty cool really you know you can still i mean i still do every night you know watch those sort of videos on youtube and i'm, I'm, I'm you know it's for me it's a bit like how the old skateboard videos were for skaters you know mm. um, stick a stick a great soundtrack on it fisheye lens and loads of people riding nice fixed gear bikes <laughs> around san francisco and I'm I'm into it. It's, I just you know I, I'm a sucker for that stuff. Yeah, totally. it's just it's like a whole nother genre. It's like a whole nother world that I just don't know about. And um, I guess yeah, one day I'll have to dive dive head first into it. I need to get myself a fix. Don't dive head first no, into anything, Lizzie. Yeah, Stop no, diving head first into things. That is that's, a very very good idea. <laughs> Um, That's where you've been going wrong. Yeah, I mean, I definitely not dive head straight, not dive head first straight into it. But yeah, I mean, the only the only fixed gear bike I've ridden has been on the track, and it you know I've really not done much on the track. I was uh, the year that I started riding, um, the university said, "Hey, do you want to do books track?" And you know, I'm the kind of person if someone says, "Do you want to do it?" I say, "Yeah, sure." Um, and so I think I did two taster sessions on the track, and then went and rode. Um, Bucks which is the the inter-university competition and the sprint and the IP and a few different events and it was great fun it was really really great fun but I guess yeah there's a, there's some other kind of track headlines fixie headlines at the moment isn't there well I mean Lionel and Rich have been at the Ghent six day for a start so uh, it's all fixed gear around the cycling podcast but yeah I mean obviously you know there was there was Alex Dowsett's um our record attempt um which I mean sadly you know he didn't pull it off but I I still think the actual effort had the impact that was intended you know for his charity and all that sort of stuff but also I mean it was just interesting to see the the tech and the kit that he was riding really yeah. that's why that's why I oh think. it was bonkers I mean it, we we watched it and it was yeah screaming at the tv for him and you know he was out in Aguas Calientes in Mexico and in an empty stadium which I think is so hard because you really feed off that crowd and uh, you know throwing back to the National Hill Climb Championships, there were so many people there that the, the, the riders at the end said that their ears were just ringing because it was just such a wall of noise. And so when you, you know, you have nothing left, you don't even feel that pain because you, you feed off that atmosphere and that crowd. And then going back to when Alex Dowsett um, set the hour record quite a few years ago now, probably should have looked this up. <laughs> I can't remember what year it was. It was. Uh, and he set it in... Um, Manchester? Manchester in Manchester yeah, yeah absolutely um and it was a full crowd it was a full crowd at the velodrome there mm. and and that makes such a huge difference um but yeah it was it was an amazing attempt and I think that whatever the outcome was you know he didn't he didn't beat the record he didn't beat the British record but he raised so much money and awareness for his charity Little, Little Bleeders um which uh helps out young haemophiliacs um you know Provides them with, uh, you know, a way to, to, to do sport because, you know, he was so, so often told that, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And mm. actually he is a professional cyclist and um, he manages it so well. And, you know, the medication is so good now that you can live a normal life. And yeah, it, it's absolutely brilliant. Just just the amount of awareness he's, he's raised for young haemophiliacs, regardless of anything else, whether we you know whether he'd broken the record or not. But then there is so much cool, cool kit. I mean, there's yeah, it's bonkers how much effort goes into a record I know. like that. Into such a simple, such into essentially what is a simple bike. I mean, I was, I was actually I was in touch with his coach uh, Hutch, Doctor Hutch is his coach, and he was he was out there with him and um, sort of texting back and forth. They were actually out there during um, uh, Day of the Dead, the Mexican. <laughs> festival where everyone paints their face and I was I was quite disappointed that Alex hadn't painted his face for the attempt I thought that would have been a bit more aero but I I couldn't I couldn't get Hutch to agree to that sadly but um yeah I mean the amount of work that goes into it just not even you know just the 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 tech but logistically wise is amazing but there was some pretty expensive stuff being used yeah but I mean first back to logistics I think that it's also very easy for outsiders to assume that there is a team of people uh organizing everything and that alex just it was four people it was yeah, four people and that alex just has to turn up and ride his bike um but it's not the case you know he he and and his partner chanel and you know i'm sure hutch as well have been working for months to prepare this and there's so much so much time and effort that goes into 
finding the money, being worried about whether you've got the money, um, trying to refine equipment, like time in the wind tunnel, traveling to the wind tunnel, um, time training in the position, just, you know, all of these things, it takes so much time and energy to, to refine everything and get everything right. And, you know, this is cycling. This is not football, you know? Alex is mm. doing this pretty much off his own back. And that is what makes the whole thing so impressive. But yeah, I mean, just his skin suit alone, right? It's a, it was a Vortex skin suit, thousands of pounds it costs. It costs, sorry. And uh, it's an asymmetric skin suit. So because he is going in left-hand circles, anti-clockwise circles around the track, there's stuff going on on the right-hand, oh, sorry, on the left-hand side of the suit, which isn't going on on the right. Um, because the airflow is slightly different on the left because you are leaning slightly to the left the majority of the time. And, you know, the details like that, it's just, it's just mad, really. It's just mad how much effort goes into it. I mean, it's, yeah. Do you know what, Liz? The more I think about this, I think uh, you and Gabriel would be a good team for <laughs> doing the hour. I think, I, think that, I think a project between you and Gabriel would be, uh, I think that'd be quite good in our record project. I'm, trying, what am I, I'm just trying to encourage you to do all these things that you don't <laughs> yeah. want to do. What am I doing? <laughs> I'm fine, thanks, Tom. I, <laughs> I mean, you know what? I, I kind of am tempted by the hour record. I, I, in some ways I am. But it also, you know, it, and any... Any goal requires so much sacrifice and dedication to that specific goal. Um, and I guess there are so many other things that I want to do. And I, I feel like I've not even had a full season in Europe. You know, I feel like yeah. 2019 was maybe my first, my only full season in Europe, 2020. You know, we all know what happened then. And then this year I I wasn't able to ride. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm just going to race a season Um and get that under my belt and then this time next year come back to me and we can talk about our record and um fixed gear crits in the car park <laughs> nice well listen lizzie i'm gonna let you go um when are you gonna be on cycling podcast feminine making that big announcement about what you're doing <laughs> next year when can we look at when when can, when can i listen to that hopefully hopefully soon hopefully at the end of this month and um if not we can talk all about it in uh in next month's podcast Well, Lizzie, I look forward to you telling someone else before you tell me. I can't wait. (laughs) Everybody, he already knows. He's known for months. (laughs) I'll um, I'll speak to you next month, Lizzie. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe, if the Cycling Podcast family and I don't get there first. Well, thanks, Tom. And uh, yeah, I'm glad, glad you're somewhere flattered that you can enjoy riding your fixie again now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.